Our next speaker, Wendy Ulrich, PhD, MBA, has been a psychologist in private practice, president of the Association of Mormon Counselors and Psychotherapists, and a visiting professor at Brigham Young University, Provo. She founded 16 Stone Centers for Growth, which offers seminar retreats for Latter-day Saint women and their loved ones. She has many books, including Let God Love You, Weakness is Not Sin, which I absolutely love, uh, Habits of Happiness, The Temple Experience, also a good one, Forgiving Ourselves, and a national bestseller of The, the Why of Work, co-authored co with her husband, Dave Ulrich. Um, Whitney's newest book is Live Up to Our Privileges, Women, Power, and Priesthood, published by Deseret Book. And with that, I'd like to introduce my friend, Wendy Ulrich. I am honored to be here uh, with you today and excited to have a chance to talk about this topic that is near and dear to my heart. Um, the book that came out in, I think it's April uh, or May from Deseret Book, had its birth, birth um, conception here three years ago, and I hope that I can add to the discussion that we began three years ago, which I don't expect any of you to remember, so I will just maybe repeat everything I just said then and you won't know the difference, but that's okay too. Um, I'd like you to, to get out a piece of paper and a pencil if you've got one, just because I'm going to ask you to do things a little bit once in a while. My husband is a great speaker and really good in a group this size at getting people to talk to each other and interact with the group, and I'm lousy at those things, mostly because I hate when people make me talk to people. I, I don't like it. So I'm not going to make you talk to anybody, but you may want to talk to yourself a little bit. And I am a psychologist, but I will not diagnose you with anything if you do that, I promise. Um, but I'd like to begin with three uh, simple, simple questions on a scale of 1 to 10. How well do you think you are living up to your privileges relative to the priesthood and priesthood power? Number two, how well do you understand what your privileges are relative to the priesthood and priesthood power? And number three, how important is it to you to understand and live up to those privileges? After, after speaking about this topic three years ago, I came away wondering if I was really living up to my privileges. And I am still asking myself those questions. But I hope today we can continue that conversation and look a little bit at some of the ways that we can start valuing, understanding, and living up a little better to the privileges I believe everyone in this room has been offered relative to the priesthood. Let me just see by um, show of hands, hold up your hands. How, what did you vote? What was your number for number one, for question number one? What did you write? I got sevens, eights, fives, 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 sevens, and I don't see any big difference in what people are saying based on gender. Um, the, the men and the women are both in the five to seven range, as near as I can tell, which is, which is interesting. Um, how well do you understand those privileges? What do we got? Eight, six, five, four, seven, eight, nine. We got a range on that one as well. Um, and I hope that if you don't feel it's important, um, you'll find someplace else to go to church. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think uh, one of the things that has been really helpful for me in, in this discussion has been to simply try to understand better what are we even talking about. We get criticism internally and externally because women, quote, don't hold the priesthood in the Mormon church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, but I think sometimes we misunderstand a little bit internally and as well as externally, certainly there's some misunderstanding about what we even mean by priesthood. Because we have a different view of what priesthood is, and when we think we're talking about the same thing that other people are talking about, it can create some real confusion on both sides. So let's look for a minute what priesthood is, as it's commonly understood. 
If you look it up on uh, you know, Wikipedia or something, it'll tell you priesthood is the officer position of being a priest. That's not very helpful, so then you have to go to what's a priest. A priest is a religious leader authorized to perform the sacred rituals of a, of a cult, of a, of a religion. Sometimes priests are also authorized to interpret sacred texts, usually because they've been schooled for many years in training in what those texts mean, and to intercede with the divine on behalf of their people, which is why they perform those rituals in the first place, I suppose. And we can see elements of our understanding of what, um, what priesthood is to us as well, but we can also see perhaps some differences. For example, you may notice that uh, religions that don't have a lot of ri religious ritual in the first place don't have priests. They call them something else. That's sort of the nature of what a priest is, is somebody who does the rituals of a faith. If we were to look at just who does the rituals of our faith, particularly our most exalting and important rituals, we would see kind of a 50-50 mix, men and women. And yet sometimes we don't think of that as being the work of priests or the work of priesthood because we think of priests as being the people who, pass, who, who bless in the sacrament and can baptize people. Those are the rituals that they are in charge of or have authority to perform. Rituals that are pretty basic and pretty simple and pretty fundamental to what we believe but would probably be rituals we would see as rituals having to do with salvation, maybe more than exaltation, maybe not, maybe the fundamentals, but not even the most um, empowering rituals of our faith, which is kind of interesting. Priests are not referenced in the New Testament church. Paul talks about, Hebrews, about priests in Hebrews, and they're referenced in other places, but they're always referring to the priests in the temple in Judaism. They're not referring to the priests in the New Testament church. There's no mention that they had priests, probably because when they thought of the word priest, they thought of the people running the temple sacrifices over in Jerusalem, and that would be the main reference that they would have for priests. In the early church, they're just kind of finding their own rituals and their own um, place for priesthood. And a lot of these words that we borrow and use for offices in the priesthood really start out as just sort of common everyday words with common everyday interpretations that are sort of different from our own. It's, um, it's interesting to me then that we're making some progress at least internally in demonstrating that women in the church do priestly things even though we don't say they have the priesthood. But we maybe don't have as much of an understanding of what priesthood is and how women participate in it. So let's look at that. This is a definition from, um, kind of drawn from uh, a number of talks that I read from gen current general authorities about what priesthood is. We see priesthood as the power by which God creates, governs, and redeems his children and the universe. That's a little different from priesthood being the authority in your religion to perform the rituals of your religion, isn't it? So we have a very different idea about what we mean by priesthood. We see it very differently. And as portrayed in this beautiful picture by Walter Rain, um, this priesthood power to create and govern the universe can sort of feel like superpower, you know, like we've got Jesus up there kind of casting a spell on the elements, um, looking like Superman as he creates the world. It's done, it looks like, with lightning bolts and high drama. And that may be true. I don't know how all those things happen. That memory's been blocked. But perhaps even the way that God creates and governs and redeems would look to an, an observer if we had such a thing, much more like a kind of mundane, time-intensive, maybe even evolutionary process than maybe casting lightning bolts to create the, 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 the earth in, in a matter of you know, minutes or hours or days. Um, and so we can get the idea, even if we see this as being what priesthood really is, that it, it makes priesthood feel even more distant, more unlike anything I do, something that is completely unfamiliar and unrelated to my normal life. And I think that that can be its own kind of problem for us. So um, in any case, it's not, 
just authority from a church to do these rights, but the power of God over matter and life. So then we can add to that definition from Joseph F. Smith, priesthood is the power of God delegated to man, as in mankind, humanity, to act in the earth for the salvation of the human family. That sounds a little more like something I could aspire to participate in, that he, he does this, the saving, but that we get to participate either literally by temporally saving people or symbolically by through ordinances that we help provide saving, allow, helping people access God's salvation. And so women in the church can participate, we can see ourselves as, as women, we can see women in that role a little more as they perform rituals and they teach and they interpret doctrine and they pray for others expecting their intercessions to be efficacious at the throne of God. Um, we can certainly argue then that women as well as men perform these priestly roles in the church. In fact, I can't really find anything that I've seen as a definition of what it means to hold the priesthood that women don't do in some way. We, women certainly participate in performing the sacred rituals of our faith. They teach, they interpret scriptures, they uh, stand in leadership roles, they intercede through prayers, public and private, on behalf of others. What is it then that, uh, that, that women don't have, that men do? I think there's something that men have when they are ordained to priesthood and given priesthood offices or keys, but I'm having a really hard time articulating exactly what that is. And so let me add a different, slightly different definition. Um, to uh, President Smith and say that it's the power of God delegated to men and women, which would be to mankind, which would be included there anyway, to help create, govern, redeem, and empower the human family. We're not just trying to save people. God is not just trying to save people from their sins but to empower them with all that he is and has. That is a unique, even blasphemous, doctrinal claim that we make to most of, of, of Christianity and the world. That is seen as a blasphemous statement. The idea that God can make us in his own image in every sense of the word is impossible. I recently had a conversation with a friend who joined the church from Catholicism as a teenager. She was back visiting with um, members, or not, not members, from uh, family members from Catholicism back east. These people had all gone to parochial schools. They saw themselves as staunch Catholics. But when she began talking to them about how they experienced religion in their life, what their relationship was like with God, she said, they looked at me like I had three horns and said things like, you don't have a relationship with God. God is something so far distant, so far out there, so far away from anything I am, that it would be blasphemous to assume I could have a relationship with him. He is, I am his creation. I am, I am I'm not in relationship to him. My job is to praise and honor him but I don't have a relationship with him. I don't think that's necessarily a common feeling in Christianity, but it was hers. So um, I'd like to look today at some of the details under what priesthood might entail for women and men in the church. And, um, and we have our, our wonderful Relief Society president and our newest apostle seated together here in uh, what I thought was a reasonably good picture to describe what we're going to be talking about. We believe, and I'm going to assert some of these things and talk about some of them in more detail and just sort of leave some of them as just assertions, that both women and men in the church may receive priesthood authority from those holding priesthood keys, develop and exercise priesthood power, participate in God's work in the world as embodied in priesthood offices, which we'll spend a little more time at, be organized according to priesthood patterns in quorums, relief societies, and young women's organization. Enter the order of the Son of God associated with the Melchizedek priesthood from a beautiful talk by President Benson. 
um, that we won't go into today and receive the transcendent blessings associated with obtaining the priesthood. So we'll look at some of these in more detail than others. The first one, women and men receive priesthood authority, um, is, is just sort of a new idea in the last five years, really, articulated by Elder Oaks in conference in 2014. We're not accustomed to speaking of women having the authority of the priesthood in their church callings, but what other authority can it be? When a woman, young or old, is set apart to preach the gospel as a full-time missionary, she's given priesthood authority to perform a priesthood function. The same is true when a woman is set apart to function as an officer or teacher in a church organization under the direction of one who holds the keys of the priesthood. Whoever functions in an officer calling received from one who holds priesthood keys exercises priesthood authority in performing her or his assigned duties. We have, I've, I think, one of the ways that we receive authority is by a specific calling or office. There are others. If I'm given a temple recommend, I am being authorized to go to the temple and do work there in a priestly role on behalf of the dead. If I'm given a ministering assignment by my Relief Society president who doesn't specifically hold priesthood keys, I am nevertheless acting under her authority given to her by someone who does hold those keys in doing that work of the priesthood which is involved in meeting with the house of each member um, and, and supporting and instructing and, and helping them. So um, there are different ways that we can be given those, that authority. Elder Ballard in 2015 says, like faithful sisters in the past, you need to learn how to use the priesthood authority with which you have been endowed. He doesn't explain exactly what, that, what he means by that. How are women and men endowed with priesthood authority? I don't know exactly, but it's a provocative statement. Um, and he says we, we need to do that to obtain, I'm continuing the quote that uh, I didn't have room for, to obtain every eternal blessing that will be yours. We need to learn how to use the priesthood authority with which we have been endowed in order to obtain every eternal blessing that will be ours, is his quote here. So, um, and all of a sudden, of course, my computer is going to freeze on me. So, um, so I hope that's enough to sort of make the claim women have priesthood authority that they can receive. Um, next, we're going to talk a little bit about priesthood power, very just quickly trying to lay some framework here. Women and men develop and exercise priesthood power. Again, from Elder Ballard, when men and women go to the temple, they are both endowed with the same power, which is, by definition, priesthood power. While the authority of the priesthood, continuing this quote, is directed through priesthood keys held only by worthy men, access to the power and blessings of the priesthood is available to all God's children. I put this picture because when I was out walking the other day um, in the mountains near where I live, I came across this creek. And I thought, you know, it's a little like the authority of the priesthood is like the banks of the river. The rocks are very visible here, um, and they, they channel or direct the flow of the water. The water itself, however, is the power of the priesthood, and that power is what gives life to that, that which is on either side of the bank of the river. If you've ever been at a dry creek bed, you can see where the river was supposed to go, but things don't continue to grow there if the water has stopped flowing in that direction. And that was a helpful analogy for me in understanding a little bit the difference, perhaps, between priesthood authority and priesthood power. Now, if we're going to talk, however, about power, we need to understand something, because I think I, I read recently in a talk from, Elder, Elder, from President Nelson, um, I, I, uh, it was a talk to the priesthood on how to obtain power, we're going to look at it in a minute, but he talked about the importance of, of letting the Savior know that your desire above all else is to have his power in your life. And I thought, that sounds a little scary to admit to. You know, it sounds like, I want power, you know. Um, but there's a difference between how we understand power in the world and how we understand power in the church. In the world, 
power is about amassing resources, command and control, intimidating by threat and punishment, getting others to do what you want, symbols that make you look strong and important. In godly power, and there's a range in between, I'm sort of looking at the anchors on either side, godly power is about distributing the resources from an, a, an, an attitude of abundance, not deficit, inviting and persuading, not commanding control, inspiring confidence through love and support, not intimidating by threat and punishment, and empowering others to do what they want, not trying to get them to do what you want. That's a little bit of an unusual idea, perhaps. We think of God as wanting us to do what he wants. But I notice, I remember reading a scripture, and I couldn't find it quickly right now, but he was talking about the sons of perdition not getting what you know, the celestial kingdom, because they weren't willing to receive it. And so they're going to get what they're willing to receive. It's even with those people that we would think of as God condemning, that he says, no, I'm just giving them what they want. This is what, they're, that this is what they want. They want other things with it that you can't have in eternal law, but, but they're getting what they want. And um, he's trying to help us all too. I had to include... The picture on the left here, because we, we just got back from Russia last night, late at night. We spent a day in Russia this week, and um, we heard a great joke that I thought was relevant. I'm not good at jokes, so this is it, so listen carefully. Um, the, the Russian person I was talking to, we were talking to, said, um, there are four things that you don't get to choose in life. You don't get to choose your parents. You don't get to choose your nationality, where you're born. You don't get to choose your religion, and you don't get to choose the president of Russia. <laughs> and I thought, well, we kind of believe you do get to choose, maybe at least participate in choosing your parents and your nationality, and you definitely get to choose your religion, but we'll, we'll give you the fourth one. Um, but a healthy power that is somewhere in between these two extremes is also possible. And even God sometimes seems to use something that looks like worldly power. But that's not his, that's not his modus operandi most of the time. In fact, there are some vehicles, however, that God uses to help us develop healthy power that have been really interesting for me to contemplate. This is the question I will leave with you to not, I'm not done, but that, um, that I would encourage you to think about more over the next uh, little while. And you can go home and talk to, you, to each other about this because, and tell me your answers because I think it's really an interesting question. What does God use to help us develop his kind of power? And as near as I can tell, what he uses is weakness and vulnerability in order to teach us power. The kind of power he has comes through those processes. It seems to involve stripping us of knowledge we once had, of access to God more directly that we once had, leaving us weak, dependent, and vulnerable as we come into this mortal experience because there's something about that process that helps us develop godly power. I could ponder that a long time, but it seems to, um, it seems to suggest that godly power has something to do with lessons about humility and compassion and empathy that can only be learned through suffering and submission and sacrifice. So how do we participate in this power in the church? Let me ask you another question. Just write down a word or two. If you were living up to your privileges of exercising priesthood power, where would you be? Imagine yourself, think about a time when you saw or would imagine yourself exercising priesthood power where would you be? What would you be doing? How would it feel? How would it feel to the people around you? I asked these questions of a group of women I was uh, meeting with recently, and they had some interesting insights. I asked them specifically, if you were living up to your privileges of exercising priesthood power as a woman, 
what would you be experiencing? But I first asked them, if you were to imagine a man exercising his priesthood power, where would he be and what would he be doing? And they said um, he'd be at church, running a meeting, setting someone apart, or giving a blessing. That's, that's what they thought of. How many of you thought of those kinds of things? Nobody. Well, they were weird then. Okay. Um, <laughs> But I thought, yeah, that's probably what I would think of too. Uh, and, and one of the reasons maybe women don't think of themselves as having priesthood power sometimes is because we limit ourselves to those kinds of images. They said things like, I would be at my friend's house, I'd be at work, I'd be in the community, I'd be ministering, I'd be in my primary class, I'd be at home in my bedroom, I'd be in the kitchen, I'd be in the temple, I'd be in the garden. The only one that was remotely suggestive of being in the church was in my primary class. It was nothing to do with running a meeting and nothing to do with ordaining somebody or giving someone a blessing. In fact, what they would be doing was teaching, speaking, counseling, ministering, writing, church callings, praying, leading, temple service, healing, serving, lots and lots of things. So I think one of the things that may be valuable for all of us is when women have to expand how we see ourselves looking at priesthood power, perhaps it helps all of us to expand where we might see ourselves exercising priesthood power. I asked them how they would feel if they were exercising this priesthood power and they, thought, and they sort of implied things like, I would feel like men look to me when they are doing this, which is confident powerful, strong, joyful, in charge, in tune with the spirit. That's how I'd feel if I really felt like I could exercise priesthood power. And I wrote all those things down and then I paused and I waited and I said, anything else? And there was a pause and then a woman said, I'd feel nervous. They added, I'd feel overwhelmed. I might feel worried that I wasn't doing it right, hesitant, inadequate. And I could tell there was kind of a feeling because I don't have this power in the legitimate way he has it. So he wouldn't feel those things that I'm feeling. Let me ask you, brethren, have any of you in a church calling where you've been asked to exercise priesthood power? When you've been asked to give a blessing or run a meeting or make a decision, have you ever felt overwhelmed, worried, hesitant, nervous, or inadequate? <laughs> the men I talk to have. <laughs> and I think sometimes women need to understand as well, this is part and parcel of spiritual growth. Because we feel nervous or hesitant doesn't mean we're doing something wrong. It means we're trying to grow. And that comes with the territory of increasing our spiritual power. I also asked them, how would others feel if you were doing this? And they said, pretty quickly, disapproving, perhaps. Curious, maybe, but critical, distrustful. Finally, one of them said, well, maybe they'd feel inspired if I was doing something that looked like I was powerful in some way. And finally, someone said, I hope they would feel empowered. And that's a really important thing here, because that's the difference between godly power and worldly power. Worldly power is something you amass to yourself. Godly power is about empowering others and giving away everything. He, he gives away the store. And if we're going to be empowered in the way that he wants us to be, I think that's what we're going to be trying to learn too, not just to be powerful, but to be empowering. Um, so this is the talk I referenced from, from uh, President Nelson. We won't go into a lot of detail on, but I re highly recommend it. It's in the priesthood session of April 2017 conference. But it's very applicable to all of us as we are trying to exercise and learn to develop priesthood power. We need to have the desire. When the Savior can feel that the greatest desire of your heart is to draw his power into your life, you will, you will be led by the Holy Ghost to know exactly what you should do. That is an astounding promise. 
I don't know that there are many times in my life when I felt like I knew exactly from the Holy Ghost everything I should do. Um, but I, I am interested in that, that he is basically saying it's good to want power, spiritual power, priesthood power, because it's not going to be about you. It's going to be about how you can serve, how you can bless, how you can help others. Are you willing to pray, to know how to pray for more power? That's one I'm writing down. Am I praying to know how to pray for power? Am I studying? Am I praying to know how to study so that I can be empowered? Am I avoiding worldly distractions? Am I praying to know how to do that so that the power of the Lord can come into my life? Um, he, he adds these others as well. Are you going to the temple looking for how to draw his power into your life? Are you keeping your covenants in a way that empowers you with his power? I, I left this one without changing it um, as I, I might have, as I was quickly tempted to do. He is talking to the priesthood brethren, but he says, cherish your wife and embrace both her and her counsel. Women have heard a lot that we are, are to listen to the counsel of our spouses. And he is here asking the men to listen to the counsel of their spouses, which I thought was very lovely. Um, quoting, by union of feeling, we obtain power with God. And then to act on the things that we're, that we're trying to do. What was kind of disappointing to me as I read this, this talk, which is about how to get priesthood power, was that it's not rocket science. There's nothing ex, ex, you know, unusual here. There's nothing new. There's nothing magical. There's no thunderbolts. There's no drama. If we want priesthood power in our lives, this is what our prophet has told us. We'll bring it. The simple things that we know to do, but that can feel kind of mundane, that can feel kind of unexciting in some ways. So I want to go now to how do we participate in God's work through the, um, the offices of the priesthood. As I tried to understand, well, what is the work of God in the world, it occurred to me that those priesthood offices seem to embody that work, and that one way of understanding what a priesthood office is, is it's a stewardship over a particular element of God's work in the world. But that stewardship isn't restricted to men. And the work that is embodied in those offices is not restricted to those who hold those offices either. As women, we are also in, in, involved in the work of God in the world in all of the ways that, that um, these are implicating. So I went to the scriptures to try to see what those offices include. All of the offices of the priesthood are told words like, you are to preach, teach, exhort, expound, um, warn, and... What's that last one? And invite. Um, all of them have that. Those are not restricted to teachers. And matter of fact, teachers are given different responsibilities that are separate from those. Uh, but all of them are invited to do that. Let me just ask you on any given Sunday, I think one of the apostles made this comment one time, what percent of the teaching, expounding, exhorting, warning, inviting, and preaching is being done by women in the, in the wards and branches of the church? And his comment was at least 50% or more is being done by women. Deacons, they're really the only thing that they're required to do scripturally is assist other priesthood holders. That's it. There's nothing said about passing the sacrament. There's nothing said about any of that. It's just you're supposed to assist other people. That's in part because deacons in the early days of the church when these scriptures were, were given were adult men. It's only in the late 1800s in Utah when they were, trying to, they were losing the rising generation that the kids were out, you know, shoplifting and, and being hooligans that they said, we've got to get them involved in the church. We're going to give the priesthood to these young men, see if we can rein them in and get them involved in, in the work of, of salvation for the human family. And so they started giving these offices to young men, and then they had to sort of change, what are we going to have them do? You know, so, so they thought of something for the, the, the deacons to do, and they thought of stuff for the teachers to do, because before that, the teachers, and especially the teachers, the teachers' quorum, were the home teachers of the church. They were, to go, they were block teachers. They were assigned a, a block of families, adult men, who would go two by two, and they would 
counsel with them like a bishop would. They would. They were even, you know, to some extent involved with forgiving their sins and 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 um, doing marriage counseling and things like that, helping people. You don't ask 14-year-olds to do that, do you? So you might send them out with another adult man to sort of begin to learn how that looks a little bit, but you're not going to just turn it over to them. So that's that's what they were asked to do was just, uh, you know, kind of go along with the other guys and maybe set up the sacrament table. Um, but their real calling is to visit the members and watch over and strengthen them. Does that sound like anything you do, sisters? Gentlemen? Brothers? This is the ministering program of the church, basically, in its current iteration of this, this kind of assignment. Teachers were really, the, the work embodied in the office of a teacher is building community. How do we help unite people as a community in smaller groups than you can find in just a ward or a, a branch? Priests officiate in holy saving ordinances. That's what priests do. We've learned that from the definition we already read. And then we get into the Melchizedek priesthood, which starts, the definition starts, an apostle is an elder. And this is what elders do. So an elder sort of embodies the totality of the Melchizedek priesthood in, in many ways. And the rest of the offices in the Melchizedek priesthood are kind of hit and miss. There are probably many people, some people at least, this is an older group, so maybe not too many, but there are probably people in this room who are elders and have never been a high priest, bishop, patriarch, sealer, 70, apostle, or prophet. Um, and you don't need to be. These are specific responsibilities that go with a particular calling, and you get given that office for, a period, for, for your life, but you only operate within that office under the keys of somebody who's told you, yes, you, you should do that now. You should be a bishop now for this group of people in this place. So an elder is kind of the foundational thing that everybody needs to be, including the women of the church in some ways. High priests govern, they sit in council, Sisters, are you using the opportunities to sit in council that we have been given? At a warden stake level, I think one of the, I wish I had time to talk about this, but I think one of the primary challenges we face is, are we working in councils effectively? As women, are we giving counsel? Are we listening well to counsel in council settings? Are we seconding the ideas of other people? Do we feel like if our particular opinion is not what is put into place that we haven't been heard? Or do we recognize that it's by unity of feeling, which we have to get to by listening and sharing both, that we get to that unity of feeling from the top council of the first presidency to the ward council at the, at the simplest level? Governance in the church happens by councils which women participate in. And we need to do it effectively. As men and women, we need to do it effectively. So um, we've got other callings here. Sealer, of course, is not really an office in the priesthood, but it functions very much the same as an office in the priesthood. Do women participate in the sealing function? Can it be done if there isn't a woman in the room? No. Because an ordinance is not just words. There is no ordinance that is just words. There is always a physical component to every ordinance. That's why they have to be done, apparently, in the flesh. And unless you are there kneeling at that altar in that priesthood form as a woman, that ceiling cannot take place. In addition to the minor reality that when women give birth within the new and everlasting covenant, they are, in essence, performing for themselves, for their child, that sealing function that cannot otherwise be done except by a sealer in the temple. So women participate in all of these things, including the opportunity to bear a personal witness of Christ's divinity and resurrection with certain knowledge. Um, so let's look for a minute at the priesthood office of a deacon. This is kind of... Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I hadn't listed these all. Um, the priesthood office of a deacon is kind of interesting. As I say, it really doesn't have an office uh, responsibility other than just helping other priesthood holders. But it's kind of interesting to think about what that might look like. The, uh, the duties of a deacon today are by assignment. 
And the, but the word deacon comes from the word diakonos. I don't know exactly how to how to pronounce it. It's just all Greek to me. But um, it, it's it's from the story in Acts where. They're, they're trying to live communally, and they eat together, the new members of the church, and we've got Jews and Gentiles kind of working this out, and they're trying to figure it out, and somebody starts complaining that the widows in the Greek community are being neglected in the daily ministration of the food. I don't know exactly what that meant. I don't know if the widows were you know, in mourning in their houses and weren't allowed to go out, so they weren't getting fed, or whether they, you know, they, they liked olives more than the Jews liked olives, and they weren't getting, I don't know what was going on. But the apostles, who are the sent ones, the messengers of this message of the way of Christ, they say, well, it wouldn't make sense for us to stop being apostles to wait tables. And that's what the word diakonos means, to wait tables. It means to serve the food. Think about the waiter at Chili's last night. That's a diakonos. In uh, Thomas Wayman's uh, beautiful translation of the, of the New Testament for Latter-day Saints, recently published by Deseret Book, he points this out a lot. Every time the word servant comes up, he points out this isn't a male-female word, and it just means to wait tables. It just means to distribute the food. It just means to pass out the food at the table. That's what servants means. So it makes sense in some ways that the deacons would be given the role of passing out the sacrament because that's where this word comes from. They chose seven men called the seven. These were really original names. The twelve, the seven, the seventy, that's, you know, the seven to wait tables to make sure that this was done. And they were adult men of mature spiritual understanding. In fact, Stephen, the first martyr of the church, was one of these men, and their names were all Greek. Does that tell you something about the sensitivity with which this was handled? The Greek women were the ones being neglected. They said, let's get the strong Greek men. You oversee this. You make sure this works. We're not going to micromanage it. You just take care of it. But it got me thinking about God's foundational role in feeding his children. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really care whether I have the privilege of standing up and passing out the sacrament trays. As far as I'm concerned, I pass the sacrament every single week. There's nothing, there's nothing, I, I'm not, it's not like I'm not allowed to touch it. The role of the deacon is to make sure no one is neglected in the daily ministration. It's interesting to think about how Christ and apostles would have performed the work of a deacon. Can you think of times when that would have been the case? It's interesting for me to think about that because it's interesting for me to think about everything Christ did in those terms because Christ did not have the priesthood in his day. Did he? He was not born into the correct lineage of the tribe of Levi to be seen as a priest in his day. He did not serve in the temple we see him as having a different priesthood, and Paul makes that argument skillfully. But he wasn't a priest in his day. He found other ways to do the work of these offices, just like I'm trying to do. So um, we see, I, I love these beautiful uh, pictures from uh, Jorge Coco. Is that how you pronounce his name? Um, do we see the apostles acting as deacons when Christ is feeding the 5,000? Do we see the Savior himself acting as a deacon, preparing the food as a resurrected being on the shores of Galilee, telling the apostles where to fish so that they can be assured there will always be enough and to spare? So now go feed my sheep. I don't think the deacon role is the bottom rung on the ladder and then you climb up to apostle and prophet. Deacon is the foundation stone of making sure everyone is fed and no one is neglected in that daily ministration. In fact, were these your first deacons? They were mine. Um, the deacon's role is first played in our lives by women and continues to be played by women through our church experience with compassionate service, with ministering, with 
bringing the food to the war dinner with whatever it may be. This is a godly role, and it changes how I see it when I think of the ways that God plays this role by feeding Adam and Eve, by feeding um, his children. In, in fact, in the last days, this mighty river that will flow out of the temple with priesthood power and heal the Dead Sea and heal the world will be flanked by trees of life whose, whose fruit and will feed the world and whose, whose leaves will heal the nations. Because I believe we are those trees that God is trying to teach us how to become, to, to take the seed of the gospel into our own lives to become that tree that produces that fruit that others will eat and plant the seed for themselves. That's who God is, someone who keeps giving away the seeds so that we can produce our own trees and give the seeds away to others. Um, so if we get into the role of an elder, elders have some, or, some, some uh, specific ordinances to do that women don't necessarily directly participate in, but I thought it was fascinating that in addition to confirming the newly baptized with the Holy Ghost, there's a specific reiteration of that that talks about confirming the church by the laying on of hands and the Holy Ghost. What does it take to confirm someone a member of the church, I wonder? Not just in that symbolic sense, but literally. How do we participate in, in confirming one another? in the church through the Holy Ghost. Um, we talk about healing the sick and conducting meetings as led by the Holy Ghost and missionary service as being under the, the realm of elders. There's some fascinating examples, of course, from the early days of the church with people like Eliza R. Snow and Zina Young coming to what, uh, the ward that I now live in, obviously uh, fairly recently, but in Alpine, Utah, my, my great-grandmother was a 13-year-old little girl when um, the first young women's organization was organized in Alpine, Utah, by her Relief Society president who called the young women's president and her counselors. And then a year later, Eliza and Zina show up to kind of instruct them more, and that organization is reordered, and some new people are called, and I don't know by exactly whom, but Zina and Eliza give every one of those young women a, priest, a, a, a blessing by the laying on of hands. Eliza does it in tongues, and then Zina interprets by the laying on of hands to bless them. The commentary that I saw was this was the first time these young women had experienced the interpretation and giving of tongues, and they were a little taken back, I would imagine. But we, we saw more of women stepping into those kinds of things in the early days of the church than we do now. Um, some of those have been reined in with correlation efforts, but some of them have been expanded. For example, this is um, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Claridge McCune. She was a wealthy woman in Utah in 1887, I think it was, who went with her family on an extended trip to Europe. Her husband was very wealthy. And uh, there was a book that had been published at the time that fair people would have loved um, that was very critical of the church and especially of the church's treatment of, of, of women in Utah. And on short notice at the London Annual Conference, Sister McCune was called to the pulpit. No, she was... She was given, a, she, in the morning session, it was, it was announced from the pulpit she would be speaking that afternoon, which was a surprise to her, and which terrified her, and um, she said she was nearly scared to death. But she got up and she gave this talk, and she talked about her own experience. Um, they did this because the male elders were having a really hard time refuting the claims of this book. But she said to the, from the pulpit that she had traveled extensively in the U.S. and Europe and never found women held in such high esteem as among the Mormons of Utah. She said, our husbands are proud of their wives and daughters. They do not consider that they were created solely to wash dishes and tend babies, but they give them every opportunity to attend meetings and lectures and to take up everything which will educate and develop them. Our religion teaches us that the wife stands shoulder to shoulder with the husband. She was so effective that they started asking her to speak in more settings. As, uh, and, and after a while, not very long, within a few months, the mission president in the Europe mission sent a letter to the president of the church saying, you know, we really could use some good sister missionaries. Any chance you'd be willing to call some? And the next year, the first sister missionaries 
single sister missionaries were called, in part because of the work of Sister Elizabeth McCune in stepping up to an opportunity given to her under the auspices of the priesthood of someone who held the keys. She wrote, um, I told my daughter one day that I believed the time was not far distant when women would be called on missions. I often felt if I were commissioned of God, as the young men were, I could have gone into every house and entered into a quiet religious chat with the people, leaving each one with my earnest testimony. Isn't that exactly what we would love to see our missionaries able to do today? To simply befriend people and go into their homes and have that quiet religious chat. So those are some of the, the things that elders do. It's interesting for us to think as women of how we might participate in that work. Um, one of the ways, of course, and I've skipped over priests a little bit, but I think elders is really in, in some ways more relevant here is we participate in priesthood ordinances. This is a picture I found in the Temple Institute in uh, Jerusalem, in Israel and Palestine. Um, I don't know if you can tell exactly what's going on, but the Temple Institute there isn't run by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's run by the, the Jewish faith. And they are trying to reorganize things so that they can rebuild the temple, the Jewish temple. So they're, building, they're, they're creating all the clothing, they're creating the menorahs, they're creating the, the lather, lavers and all of the different things that would go in a Jewish temple. This picture was on the wall. What do you see here? If, oh, that would help, wouldn't it? Yes. Sorry. Thank you. Um, this is, again, the Jewish priestly class of the tribe of Levi. You had the right to be a priest if you were born into that class or that, that family as a descendant of Aaron, but then you had to be vested when you reached a certain age. You went to the temple to be vested with the priesthood which you had by birthright, but you didn't get to function as a priest. You weren't really considered as having the priesthood till you did this. You went to the temple, you were washed, you were anointed, you were dressed in white clothing, and you, had, you were given authority by some kind of laying on of hands, apparently, that made you a priest. Sisters, does any of that sound the slightest bit familiar? So these are the men coming on the left side into the temple in their normal dress, and these are the stacks of white clothing up at the top of the stairs there, and the guys carrying down the packet of white clothing for the dressing of these priests because it's when they were dressed in, their, in this clothing that they were considered to be priests. And only when they were wearing this clothing were they really considered to be priests. Um, if that doesn't look familiar, then you know maybe you ought to get your temple recommend renewed. Joseph Smith spoke of establishing among the Relief Society sisters a kingdom of priests. This kingdom of priests would be comprised of men and women who made temple covenants. That from the gospel topic, uh, Joseph Smith's teachings about priesthood, temple, and women at LDOS.org. Elder Ballard, the endowment is literally gift of power. All who enter the house of the Lord officiate in the ordinances of the priesthood. We go to the temple for the first time to be clothed and vested with that authority. And we go back to act in that priestly role on behalf of everyone else we are there for, vicariously or as a worker. In all of those roles, we are acting with priesthood authority. Um, the priesthood authority exercise, this is also from that same article, exercised by Latter-day Saint women in the temple and elsewhere remains largely unrecognized by people outside the church and is sometimes misunderstood or overlooked by those within. Latter-day Saints and others often mistakenly equate priesthood with religious office and the men who hold it, which obscures the broader Latter-day Saint concept of priesthood. I hope these images also are familiar to the sisters in the room, to all of you, as you think about women in these roles. So we have the opportunity to, to receive all the blessings associated with the priesthood. Um, the power and authority of the Aaronic priesthood is to hold the keys of the ministering of angels. The power of the Melchizedek priesthood is the, to receive the mysteries of the kingdom, to have the heavens open to them, to commune and come into the presence of God. 
what are these blessings? This is it. This is from uh, Elder Ballard again on men and women and priesthood power. All who have made sacred covenants with the Lord and honor those covenants are eligible to receive the ministering of angels and to commune with God, the specific blessings associated with the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood, and to become heirs alongside of Christ with all that he has. Uh, reiterating that same comment, if you live up to your privileges, Joseph Smith said to the Relief Society, angels cannot be restrained from being your associates. Females, if they are pure and innocent, can come into the presence of God. I love this, another beautiful image of women's power in the priesthood. Um, I think it's fascinating when you think about angels and the ministering of God and, and, the, and the presence of God, that temple officiators, male and female, represent angels and apostles in their symbolic role of bringing us to the presence of God. It's not just men standing up there filling that role. It's women. It's not just men who in a bishop's office tell you you are forgiven of your sins. If you go to the temple as a woman, it's a woman who will tell you that. I've noticed that women as well as men then participate in these roles of representing angels and, and God. For a long time when I went to the temple, I was looking at what Adam and Eve could teach me about what I needed to do to get priesthood power. I've, become, I've begun in recent years to look at what other people in the temple drama can teach me about priesthood, about, uh, priesthood power, about how to empower others, not just how to bring salvation and power to myself, but what do I do then once I have that? My job in the kingdom of God, in the power of God, is to empower others. That's what he does, to empower the rising generation and the next and the next and the next. Um, Christ promises that it will be better for the apostles, I read recently, if they have the Holy Ghost, that it's better for them if he leaves because then they'll have the Holy Ghost. That's a provocative statement. What's better about having the Holy, what's better than any, what could possibly be better than having the living Christ in your midst? And yet he says, no, it's better if you have the Holy Ghost and not me. There's something about that that will help you more to gain the power you came here to gain. He says, um, we'll be better off if we come here to the earth, where we will be weak and vulnerable. Christ also represents these lesser gifts. He held no priesthood authority or office in his day as it was defined. He had no position or office of religious governance of any kind. His messianic role did not involve ousting the Romans, which is what they were expecting. In fact, the Romans killed him. Instead, he was trying to help people find inner peace that did not involve changing their circumstances. His only influence was through his own wisdom character and relationships. So what might be the best way for an individual today to be like Jesus? Maybe to be a woman in the church. Now I'm not saying that men also do not have, that men, that we, men also gain their greatest victories through sacrifice, through suffering, through submission, and also get ample opportunities to be trained in those important character virtues. But we need not think that we are being left out as women because we learn these things differently. On a scale of 1 to 10, you might ask yourself, has anything changed as you've thought about these things a little bit? The priesthood isn't glamorous work, but it is how we understand what God's work is in the world of saving and empowering the human family. I repeat this from Elizabeth McCune, and I would add to it, I believe the time is not far distant when additional opportunities will be opened for women and for men to participate in the salvation and empowering of the human family. But I hope I am stepping up right now with the humility and the courage and the eagerness and the love to do what I have been commissioned to do today in the work of the Lord, acting within the priesthood authority I already have with all the priesthood power I can currently qualify for. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
take your table. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> in the temple, the, uh, uh, I gotta get my glasses back out. Read Num that for me. Numbers of ordinance workers may be 50-50 between genders, but it's probably 80-20 in favor of females when it comes to patrons. Patrons, yeah. Patrons are more likely to be females unless you go at six o'clock in the morning, ladies, and then you will find it fill filled with men. So um, that's, that's interesting. It seems you're trying to fit women into the quorums in order to give us responsibility. No, not at all. I'm trying to say the quorums embody a set of responsibilities given to the church, and men see those responsibilities perhaps in one way women do in another. Yes, we can use our own women's organization to have our role defined, yes, um, but we follow a pattern that is a priesthood pattern because it, the priesthood is God's power. Um, so can you explain more about women holding priesthood power and having priesthood authority? I think I've done that. What privileges do you mean? I'll let you decide. Thank you. Okay, thank you.